or a smartphone or something, you'll be looking at the text. We'll be in 1 John chapter 5. So we have the Gospel of John at the beginning of the New Testament. 1 John is a short letter at the very end. So if you go all the way to Revelation and work back to the left, you should be able to find 1 John pretty quick. 1 John chapter 5. One of the things I'm grateful for um, is that we, we're a spiritual people. And, and I think sometimes we take that a little bit for granted, um, that as we come in, there's prep, right? Like the teachers have prepared lessons this morning for the kids, that the band had practice, that, that I worked on a sermon, that we, right, that, that folks have, have prayed and prepared for this morning, but that ultimately we are dependent upon the Spirit um, and, and want to not forget that right, that we don't want to just pull off services, that we come as a people who are hungry and, and, and needing and dependent upon the Spirit to speak and to work and to move, and that He is able to do that um, and is not dependent upon our efforts or our preparation. Um, I say that because there are weeks where sermons or passages feel like, and what are you going to do with that? Um, and so last week, if I'm honest, was a sermon that just felt like it was off a little in my head. And so, most weeks, I'm able, at the end of the service or during the week, I'm like, you know, it is what it is. And, and, and I, there's good points and there's, there's hard points. But last week was one where I was just like, afterwards, I'm like, man, that was, oh. And, and this week, I've received more just encouragement from folks that the Spirit moved in the midst of that. Right? And, it's, and so, I say that as a reminder that, that even for whether it's the band feeling like they've missed a note or me feeling like, hey, that didn't segue as much as you want, right? Like, that the Spirit is what we're dependent upon. We're not dependent upon people. We're not dependent upon um, preparation. We're dependent upon the faithfulness of our King and our God who is living to, to touch hearts and to move in our lives. And so, um, that maybe that's a little bit more of just a, a personal testimony this week, but I am grateful for that as I stand before you this morning. So we are finishing the letter that, that John, the apostle, has written to a group of churches um, that was passed along um, in the area around Ephesus where he was an elder in the church. And we have talked um, at length at how there had been false teachers that had come out, and they did not come against the church. They came from within the church. And so these were folks that people knew. They were relationships that people had. And now they're leaving, and John, as an older man, as an older apostle now, has written a letter, and what we're going to find is a series of letters to these churches looking to assure them, to give them confidence, to give them hope, to settle their spirits, um, that the gospel that they've heard is the gospel, that it is true, and that they can have assurance of their eternity. And so he's looking to simply to pastor them, and what he has done is he's walked through kind of three tests and three criteria that we're going to see one more time this morning. And it's this, that there's a moral test of, hey, do you obey what God has called us to obey? Do we obey His commandments? There's a social test. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Like, do you actually like other people? Do you love them? And then ultimately, a doctrinal test. Do you believe the right things about God? And ultimately, what, what John has said is, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? Right? Do you believe that He is the, the God-man who was sent from the Father to rescue us? That He was both human and divine? Because where the false teachers are looking to lead them astray is to say that He wasn't divine 
where he wasn't human. They're looking to, to take away from the fact that he was the God-man, that he was the Christ. And so John is saying, look, if you believe the right things about Jesus, if you love others, if you follow God's commands, right, then you, you can be rest assured that you know him, that he has saved you, that, that he has rescued you. And so some of the words that he gives us here in chapter 5 are these big, bold, incredible, beautiful words. He says things like assurance and confidence, that we can know that God hears us, that he gives understanding, right? And we don't want to gloss over these. And so as we read this last little kind of postscript, as John is summarizing his teaching, as he's finishing this letter, that you would hear this, the incredible language that, that John gives to the church because he's writing to believers in ways that we can hope in and be assured of our relationship with Jesus. So let's pick up in verse 13, and we will finish First John this morning. John, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. If we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So you can, you can tell, first off, that this is the end of a letter, right? That he has kind of written his main point, and now he's just kind of summarizing He's trying to bring up the main points, and it's almost like a bulleted list here as he is finishing this off. And so the first thing I want us to do is, is to look at what he does in 14 and 15 in regards to prayer. So remember, he's writing to believers, and he says this. So this is the confidence that we have towards him, right, towards God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we've asked of him. And so he says this, like, church, you have confidence to go before the king, right? And we don't have confidence because of, of the lives that we have lived this week. Do we have confidence to walk before Jesus? We have confidence because Jesus has secured access to the Father, right? That we, what, what John has been telling us is, look, it's not our works that earn it, but it's our works that, that show us that we have the fruit of salvation, that it's a gift that's been given. And what Jesus has done through his obedient life, perfect on our behalf, through his death at the cross in our stead, and then through his resurrection where he beat sin and Satan and death and lives again, is that he is securing a pathway to the Father, that's why he tells us like, to trust him and to follow him because he is taking us back to the Father where we were meant to be, what we were created for was to know him and to be with him forever. And so if Jesus is eternal life, right, if in, in that he takes us back to the Father, then John is saying, so now we have access to the Father 
and we can boldly approach him. He doesn't say, hey, meekly come. Hey, make sure knock and get permission. He's saying we have confidence. It's secured by Jesus. We're in the family. Like that there's a relationship here. Now listen, um, you know, you talk about having neighbors that are like family. Typically what you mean by that is they just walk in your house, right? <laughs> that if, if they're family, they might knock, but as they knock, they're coming in, right? That, that's, that shows a difference in relationship. If, you're, if there's someone's home that you feel the freedom to walk in, right, that you confidently go in and you're not afraid you're going to get shot, right, that there's probably some good relationship there. If not, they're going to let you know that your relationship is not yet at that point, right? Like they're going to say, so why are you sitting on my couch, you know? <laughs> you should have rang the doorbell. You should have knocked. You should have let me know you're coming. But there are those that we don't even think twice when we, we show up, um, in my parents' house, I just, I, I might knock, but I just kind of open the door and go in. Because that's the type of relationship that we have. Um, and so as we think about those types of relationship, John is saying we have confidence to approach the throne of God. We have confidence to pray, to go to him. We have access to him because of the relationship that Jesus has put us in, that we are adopted sons and daughters of the king. This is significant because if we think back to John 14, in John 14, the disciples are at the, the Last Supper with Jesus. The cross is imminent. The, the, the trial is within hours, and they're nervous. They can tell something's going on. They still haven't put all the pieces together. And Jesus, as he begins to encourage them, he tells them a few things. He says, look, one, I'm going. I have to go, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he tells them, I'm going to come back for you. And there's a place that I'm going to take you to. And I'm going to leave you the Holy Spirit. So like he's, he's encouraging them. He's emboldening them. He's giving them some things. But one of the things he tells them in John 14 is this. And I'm going to give you prayer, right? Like whatever you ask, as you seek me, whatever you ask, the Father's going to hear when it's done in his will. He's giving them prayer. And so Jesus significantly says one of the things we need as those who are following the king is prayer. And it's probably one of those moments this morning that you're like, really? We're going to talk about that? But if we're honest, we're not good at praying. Most of us. It's something we know to do. It's something we talk about. We probably know it's significant. But we spend most of our time not praying. Not many people would go, hey, the way my prayer life looked this week, I can't think it could be any better. Right? That's not necessarily something that many people are willing to say. And so what he's reminding us is that that we not only have access, confidence to approach the king, right? But listen to what he says. Verse 14, sorry, verse 15. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask. So listen, Carson is not in the room right now. She's across the street. She doesn't listen to the podcast yet. But Carson talks a lot, okay? Like, a lot. I mean, she's nine-year-old, and she loves to talk, um, and she actually loves that I talk about her in the sermons, right? Like, most kids are like, hey, don't tell stories about me. She's like, I'll give you a story if you need one, like, a, well, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, she, she likes it, okay? And so the other day, um, I, I've told people this is kind of the microcosm of my life right now. We were sitting at breakfast at the house, and Jude is literally on my shoulders punching me in the head, right? And Carson's just talking, like oblivious to the fact that I'm being pummeled, right? And I'm trying to eat my waffle, and Carmen's there, you know, holding Janner, and I'm just like, what have we done? 
You know, like this, this is my life. Like, so Carson likes to talk. Y'all, I have to be super aware and intentional and attentive to not give her a lot of, mm-hmm, yeah, okay, right? Like those, like, you're not really listening, but you're giving just enough to maybe she thinks you're listening, right? And, and there, there are these moments where I'm like, I've got to, like, just stop and turn and, like, look at her and say, okay. Because I, I want her to feel like she can come to me. I want her to come with confidence and with boldness. I want her to know that she'll be heard and that, that what she asks will be considered. Right? I think often um, we forget that God is not put out by you. That he's not going, oh, my gosh, another prayer? Shut up. You know, like God is saying, I hear you. And we know the power of being heard, right? Think about being in elementary school and, and the teacher, and you're just like, please, no, 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 just listen to me for a second. And you just desperately want to be heard and get your side of the story out, right? That God is saying, I, I hear you. And not only do I hear you, I want to hear you. And not only do I hear you, but I want you to come with confidence and boldness that I'm your Father. And because we are in relationship, you pour your heart out, and you will be known, and you will be loved, and you will be heard. Church, we far too often, I think, think of the Father as indifferent or distant. And what John is reminding us as the church is we can be assured that we have access to Him, and He wants us to have access. He's given it because He wants us to know Him and to be with Him that we are known and loved and heard by him. That he tells us then that we ask according to his will, right? So how do we know his will? Here was the issue. The false teachers were saying, look, we're just, we're coming into new knowledge, new experience. We'll, we'll kind of guide you into what's true. And John said, no, no, no. Go back to the word. What has God revealed about his nature? What is revealed about his character? His will is revealed in scripture. It's revealed in the life of Jesus. And that we begin to ask prayers in light of who he is and what he's done. Now listen, this is where one of the places where prayer gets um, co-opted and, and, and thrown into an issue is that some people would say, I don't need to pray. God's in control. He's sovereign. He, he does it. My prayers change nothing. No need to pray. God's going to do what God's going to do. Right? That's, that's where some of us are at. Others, though, go, I can ask whatever I want, and we, we kind of leave out the, if it's under his will, right? And we think, oh, I'll get to control God. Whatever I ask, he's got to do it. And I just got to berate him and, and you know, and, and go at him enough. If he's our father, think about how you approach him, that we see him rightly. We, we go with respect because he is holy, because he is worthy, and he is not us. But he is not distant. Church, he is not distant this morning. That we can approach him with certainty. But can you imagine being so petulant to stand before him and demand something? Right? The difference here that what John is saying is we go before our father saying my father wants to and my father is able. My father can help. Right, and so you're like the exuberant kid that's running in there going, hey, this situation is coming. My dad has the answer, right? Versus walking in and going, so dad, do it. Right, and dad kind of bows up in the chair like, 
What did you say? Right? Like, that when my kids come and ask of me, my default is to want to say yes. Because I love that that's how they see me. But when they just kind of like flippantly throw out like demands, like, woo, that, that don't fly. Like, that, that's not going to go well for you if the, if, if the attitude doesn't change. And, and so for some of us, we have viewed prayer as God is distant, he's in control, and so we just don't do it. Others, though, we've used it and we've wielded it like a sword, like we're in control. And prayer is a mystery of Scripture, of how is God sovereign and in control, and yet he asks us to pray, and then it matters. Right? We'll ask him sometime, right? But it, he is both. He has called us to pray, to know Him in that way, to come to Him and, and have access to Him and to love Him and to approach Him and to know Him, and that it matters, and He is still in control. So, just some encouragement this morning. Look, if you're struggling to pray, begin by praying Scripture, right? As you read through Scripture, as you go to Psalms, as you see something that you're like, yeah, I want that. Write down the verse. Write down the, a word. Write, like, go, God, this is my prayer. And then just read it back to him saying, would this be my prayer to you this morning? That we would pray Scripture. I want us to imagine, right, um, some of you have a spouse or a kid or a coworker, someone that has this cell phone that doesn't seem to work. For a lot of you, that's me in your life, <laughs> okay, if we're just honest. Um, Pretty slow to respond. Um, and, and you know that frustrating thing? You show up at the, with the, someone else's grocery list at the grocery store, and then you have to decipher it, and so you try to call them, and they don't answer the phone. Right? And you're just like, why do you have a phone? You know? Like, imagine being given something that allows us to connect and not using it. That he has given us his word, which reveals his character, his nature, his will. And then he says, if you don't know what to say, here. So folks, if, if this morning, if you're like, man, my prayers are, are, are short, or they're, 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 not, they're not good, or there's nothing new in them, spend time in the Word, and you will have all the fodder you need to pray, and to lift requests. So, so maybe you're reading going, hey, God, I want that for me. God, I want this for them. Right? Use Scripture. A second is this, is use your personality. All right? There's so many tools and tips out there, but they only hit certain, certain personality types. So if you are a journaler, and some of you aren't, and you never will be, and that's okay, use a journal, right? Like write down names, write down, write down specific requests, and date it. Write down scripture, right? Just have your journal as you have your Bible, as you're praying. Some of you are writers, right? You're, you are able to articulate yourself far better with pen than you are with your mouth. Write your prayer. Who says it has to be, like, verbalized? Sit and write your prayer. Like, let that be your heart's cry. Others, man, you need a nook, a place, right? You're the person that wants the rainy day every day, right? And you want to be, like, next to the bookcase and, like, have this place. If you need a place, create a place, if you're the one that needs to be outside, go outside. But don't feel like you are put into a box here. Begin to find how your personality will begin to let you um, 
just normally kind of move into some rhythms of prayer. It's helpful to, if, if you're a writer, to keep track, to date, and then to see how the Lord answers. Because when you begin to see that he's answering and working in your prayers, you're far more likely to continue to pray. And if you really, if you really need somebody, ask someone to pray with you. Let them help you teach you how to pray. One of the, the, the tricks, tips, whatever that I use right now is I just have a calendar and it, it doesn't have days of the week on it. It just has the first, the second, the third, the fourth, so I can use it every month. And I've just written down names. And so instead of being overwhelmed by the totality of my gospel community or the totality of Redeemer um, or even my family, I just have names on, on the first and names on the second and names on the third. And when I get to the second, I look at those people and I'm like, okay, what do I know that's going on with them? How can I pray for them? When's the last time I talked to them? What do they need? Right? And, I, and so I begin to think through Scripture, and I begin to pray for them individually. And sometimes that leads to me reaching out and contacting them. Sometimes it doesn't. But right, in, instead of being overwhelmed by where do I start and what do I do, you can do that with topics. You can have family on one day of the week. Right? The nations one day of the week. Right? Work one day of the week. Your church. Right? Like you just start to like lay things out. But be, be thoughtful. And use your personality. If, if those are horrible ideas to you, then that's not your personality. Find what works for you. But the last thing is this, is be intentional. Because if we're not, it is so easy to ignore it, right? That what we do is we find ourselves praying only in desperation. When things have gotten to rock bottom, then we're like, oh, I got I to gotta ask God for something now. Instead of like it being this like access to our Father, this ongoing relationship. Um, if we're not intentional, prayer can be disconnected or it can, maybe worst of all, become ritualistic. Where we have a detached mind from our prayer at dinner, a detached mind at prayer at night. That we, we have some things that we give lip service to, but our heart is not involved. It's not connected at all. And there's no intentionality. And so... What John is doing is he is not writing um, a full out, like, hey, here's everything you need to know about prayer. Remember, he is writing the church and he's telling them, you have access to the Father. And if you want assurance and you want confidence, this is one of the ways that you get to connect with him. And we see in the prayer, we actually see the three tests. Listen, we see the doctrinal test. Do you believe you have access? Do you believe that he's good, that he's near, and that he wants to hear you pray? That your prayers are heard? If you believe those things, you're more likely to pray. We see the moral test. Do you pray? Because we've been commanded to pray. We were reminded that Jesus himself prayed, that he went off to pray. So if he needs it, believe me, we need it. And then the third test is this, is the social test, is do we pray for others? And that's where he segues now. So look at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, right? He shall pray, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death, and I do not say that one should pray for that. So here's what he begins to do is he, he moves now, and he says, I want you to pray for one another. You're not just praying for yourself. You're not just praying to God. You're praying on behalf of one another. And he notices he calls it brother. It's, again, it's this idea of family, that we have been brought into something. We have God as a father, and we have been made brother and sister. 
And he has this unique phrase here that needs some explanation. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life, meaning he'll be restored. But, and then there are those who commit sins to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. And then he says in the end of 16, there is sin that leads to death. All right. So he's saying there's sin that doesn't lead to death, there's sin that does lead to death. What's he talking about? For a good portion of church history, what some commentators have said is what he's talking about is mortal sins, right? If, if you have a more of a kind of a Catholic upbringing. So he starts to talk about adultery, murder, like these big sins. And the, and the church would often say, if you do those, you can't be forgiven. The problem with that is, is Scripture, nowhere does it list sins out and say, if you do these sins, you can't be forgiven. It doesn't say that. So what is John saying when he says there are sins that lead to death? Well, we have to consider the, the context of where we're at in 1 John. There are false teachers who have said, Jesus is not the Christ. Follow me away from him. And so the sin that leads to death is unbelief. And what John is specifically talking about here is willful, like just, like these people are choosing to say, I've seen and been taught about the Christ, and I'm now choosing to walk away. It is willful, intentional rejection. It's unbelief. In Matthew 12, 31 and 32, we see the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Again, it's unbelief. That the sin that is not forgiven is dying and having not believed in Jesus. If you look back at verse 10, it tells us that if we don't believe, you're calling God a liar. You're saying that what he's given hasn't been sufficient. That when he's testified to Jesus at the baptism, when he goes to the cross, when Jesus is resurrected, when he's given us all these proofs and all these evidence, he's like, if you don't believe that God has sent Jesus as the Christ to redeem, to secure us, to bring us back to the Father... Right? That sin leads to death and to separation. Listen, as long as you're breathing, any other sin is forgivable. Any other sin, can, you can be forgiven and turned from and trust and believe that Jesus is your rescuer and your savior. But right now, he's saying that the false teachers are on a path where they have rejected the Christ. He's like, you want to pray for him or not? They're running away from him, and that sin is going to lead to their death. Not just physically, but spiritually, that they will be separated from the Father. You notice what, what John does here. As he says at the end of 17, all wrongdoing is sin. Right? Our world right now has a, a tendency to want to say, like, sin isn't really sin. It's, it's weakness. Or that's how I'm wired. Or that's my personality quirk. Or... I just, I made a mistake. And he just says, he just reminds us, hey, all wrongdoing is sin. But then we're reminded of 1 John 1, where we started this, that, that we have an advocate. And if we confess our sins, verse 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he's reminding them, church, if you sin, if you struggle, if you fall, there's forgiveness. But if you choose not to believe and you run away from Jesus, that sin is going to lead to death. He's not calling for perfection here. He's already said that if you say you don't have sin, you're a liar. But what he's talking about is, are you wrapped up in continual, habitual sin? If that's your state, 
versus occasional slip-ups, occasional sin, occasional issues. Here's the difference. Here's how you know. If you sin and you easily are able to do it and want to do it again and there's no grievous like nature at all, you're on a really dangerous path. You're either not yet a believer or you have hardened your heart to not really believe the gospel. Because many of you would know that there was sin that you used to commit gladly and joyfully and willfully, and then Jesus met you, and now when you try to do it, you're like, this isn't fun anymore. This hurts. It grieves my soul. It grieves my spirit. Right? That is an indicator that Jesus has, has saved you. He's rescued you. When your sin now harms and hurts and you feel it and it grieves your spirit. Church, this is also reason why we need to be together. Because it says, look, if you see your brother committing a sin, right, ask, pray on their behalf. That assumes you know your brother. It assumes you know your brother or your sister well enough to know that they're sinning or that something is going on. You'll notice he doesn't say, hey, you know, make sure that you go, like, poke at them and tell them all the things they're doing horrible. He says, you begin to pray for them. It's, it's motivation. Galatians 6 says this, in verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression or sin, you who are spiritual should restore them, listen, in a spirit of gentleness, and keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted, but bear one another's burdens. So he's saying, look, what we're going to do as the church is that we're going to pursue one another. We're going to keep each other from running off because the false teachers have already left. So he's like, pray on behalf and pursue one another. Bear burdens. Love. We, because we understand the effect. We understand the burden of the enemy like just bearing down on us. There are people right now that feel like they can't pray because they've been in sin for so long. And he's saying, so pray on their behalf that God would redeem and restore and give them life. And you pursue them. Let them know that you see them and that you're seeing that their steps they're taking are headed off in a way that they shouldn't be. It's like be in relationship enough that you would care, that you would want someone to pursue you, that you pursue them. And you do it out of gentleness and out of love and with prayer because guess what? We have a real enemy who really wants to trip us up, who really wants to destroy us. We need one another. We are a gift that God has given to one another, the church. And so we see here the social test. Do we love one another enough to pursue one another? Now we're going to see as he's, he's finishing this up quickly, he gives some bullet points, the doctrinal test again. He's going to give us one more thing to make sure we're believing the right thing. Look at verse 19. We know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and the eternal life. So we're John has just kind of bounced around this idea, has come to it, come back to it. He just flat out says, look, Jesus is the true God, and he is eternal life. He's already said if we have him, we have eternal life. He's reminding them that, look, whatever the false teachers say, we know what is true, 
that it's Jesus is the Christ, he is the true God, and he is eternal life. But he's also reminding them, look at 19, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, that there are two kingdoms at play right now. There is the kingdom of God that is eternal, that has begun, and it's now, but it will be even more so for all eternity. But the kingdom of the world is still at play. It's why until Jesus returns, there's a battle, right? That we have sin and we have struggle. Now, in Christ, we have the power not to sin, right? And the penalty of sin has been paid for, but the the presence of sin is still here. Galatians 1 would say we live in the present evil age, and Satan is the ruler of this present evil age. And so John is saying, look, we have a legit real enemy who wants to close the ears of those so they don't hear the gospel, who wants to trip us up, who wants us to be attached and focused on anything other than Jesus so that we're not sharing the hope that, in, that there's a kingdom that is subversive to this world. Right? There's a kingdom that will outlast this world, and it's the kingdom of God. And it is eternal. And we get to see it break forth in the presence of this present evil age. Right? So if we understand that that's what's going on, that there, right now everyone that you know is in one of two camps. They're either following the king or they're following the ruler of this evil age. That's it. That's it. Those are the only two. And so if we know that, now prayer begins to take on more significance because we have an enemy. And we have those who are being attacked by the enemy. John Piper calls prayer um, a wartime walkie-talkie. He's like, if you know you're in battle, you want to be connected to the one in charge. But what the enemy wants to do is like, kind of lull us to sleep. Nothing to see here, nothing to see here. Just do your life, make money, have good relationships, do your thing, and just kind of ignore everything else that's going on. And what John is saying is, look, if we understand that we are already living in eternity, those of us who know Jesus, then we are freed up not to be self-serving, but to be self-sacrificing. That we pursue our brothers and sisters, that we pray for our brothers and sisters, because we are secure. The evil one cannot snatch us. He cannot touch us. That idea of, it says that he cannot touch us the only other time John uses that verb um, is after his resurrection when the women are like clinging to him and they're seeing him and he's like, hey, you can't, don't touch me like that right now. Like you've got to go tell people. Like they're holding, holding on to him. And he's saying Satan's not going to be able to grab hold of you. He may still affect you in this world, but he doesn't have you. No one can snatch you from, from Jesus. And then the final test, and here's where he ends, so we've seen the social and we've seen the doctrinal. Finally, is the moral, verse 21. So little children, remember John pastoring this congregation, says, keep yourselves from idols. And it seems like kind of a strange way to end it, like we haven't really talked about idols. Why are you going to idols? Um, but if we, if we remember and if we know that idols is anything that distracts us, it's anything that takes our energy. It's anything that takes our devotion. It's anything that would take us off of looking at the king. That it would make sense that he's saying, look, if we're going to overcome the world, if we're going to be eternally minded people, if we're going to pray and pursue our brothers and our sisters in, in their sin, 
looking for their rescue, then we can't be focused on things, right? We can't be so focused on them that we ignore and are blinded to what God has done and what he's called us to. So basically what John is saying is there is nothing worth keeping if that thing is keeping you from Jesus. And sometimes we want to make idols these really sinister big things, but sometimes idols are really small things. They don't feel like moral issues at all, but they're keeping you from prayer. They're keeping you from the Word. They're keeping you from one another. And so maybe it's comfort, right? I just don't want to have people around all the time. Or maybe it's literally our cell phone, right, that can be a really useful tool or can be this thing that is able to keep you from praying because it's just always occupying you, right? Or maybe it's, maybe it's a hobby, right? Like none of these things are wrong or bad, but they can be used as something that just distracts us enough. And listen, if it was sin, if it was this big thing, most of us, because we love Jesus, would see it for what it's worth. But instead, it's subtle, and it just kind of creeps in, and all of a sudden you're like, man, I have wasted hours doing this thing that doesn't even matter. But I don't have time to pray. Or I've done all this, but I don't have time to spend time with, with Jesus. Right? That what John is saying is he's just kind of laying out this blanket reminder that we need, because we are so prone to forget this, church, keep yourselves from things that will distract you from Jesus. For your sake and for the sake of others. Now listen, everything in its place, right? Hobbies in their place, relationships in their place, cell phones in their place are useful and good and right things that have been given for our good and our satisfaction and our betterment. But nothing will give us more contentment, more joy, or more satisfaction than Jesus. And for most of us, we will intellectually say that, but our lives don't indicate that. We don't give Jesus a chance to satisfy us or to give us contentment because we're just busy with noise, always. And so he's saying, don't be distracted, because if you're distracted, you're not listening to what the king is asking of you. If you're distracted, you're not noticing your brothers and sisters who are dying in their sin. If you're distracted, you're not living with this internal self-sacrificing motivation. And so John wraps this up by saying, look, God has come in Christ to rescue us. Because Jesus has secured our salvation, we now have access to God through prayer. We have assurance because he's given us all that we need for life and godliness. He's given us prayer. He's given us one another. He's given us his truth revealed. And because of that, church, we can overcome this present evil age because we live in a kingdom that will last for all eternity. And we get to do it together. So John's going to write a couple more letters. We're going to look at those, John, uh, 2 John and 3 John, the next couple weeks. Um, but I, I hope as we kind of wrap up 1 John, that you would feel a sense of assurance. And I want, you to remind, I want to remind you of one final thing, and then we're going to pray and be done. The assurance that John has laid out verse after verse, chapter after chapter in 1 John has not been emotional. It's not even really been eternal, internal. It's, been, it's not been subjective. It's been objective. It's like, do you obey God's commands? Have assurance. Do you love his people? Have assurance. Do you know and believe and trust the right things about God as the Christ? Then have assurance. If you don't, 
you should not have assurance. Right? It's been super clear and objective. Like, you should be able to see it, and we should be able to see it in one another. That we would no longer look back and say, hey, for someone who does not follow, doesn't love Jesus, but they look back to something that happened when they were five or nine or 13, that that is not assurance according to John, according to Scripture. Our assurance is that we love the church, that we love Jesus, and that we obey Him. And in that, we can be assured that our eternity is secure and it has already begun. Let's pray.